0: get ready to laugh out loud at the tribeca festival june 5th to june 16th in nyc experience hilarious talks comedy specials and feel-good films with your fan favorite comedians like hannah einbinder judd apatow neil patrick harris take Nataro, and more you have to be there get your tickets now at tribecafilm.com did you know the tribeca festival showcases more than just film and tv
1: How does the story we tell about what it means to be a mom or a dad fall short? I'm Anna North, and I write for Vox about work and family, and I'm your host for Vox Conversations. Americans have so many preconceived notions about motherhood and fatherhood. We like to pretend we don't, that we move past all that, We're enlightened. But once you have a kid, you see how much power the old stereotypes still have. If there's a mom and a dad in the picture, for example, everyone from daycare to camp to school to the doctor will call the mom first if there's a problem. Or if dad takes the baby out to a restaurant, back when people could just take babies out to restaurants, everyone fawns over him, so proud of him for babysitting his child, for giving mom a break. There's always the assumption that the mom is the primary parent and the dad is there, if he's there at all, to pinch it. He's somehow inessential to the entire enterprise. Chris Malcolm Belk has seen the problems with these stereotypes from a lot of different angles. In his memoir, The Natural Mother of the Child, he writes about his experience as a non-binary, transmasculine person getting pregnant and giving birth to his son, Samson, and raising him along with two other kids with his partner, Anna. He writes about the pain of getting misgendered as his son's mom, but also of the sense of loss when people start reading him as a dad, how they no longer assume a kind of innate connection between him and Samson, even though he carried Samson in his body and nursed him for two years. His memoir, told through essays, fragments, footnotes, and sometimes documents, including the ones Anna used to formally adopt Samson, is a reminder of how limited and restrictive traditional norms of family and parenthood can be. It's also an invitation to think about families, bodies, care, and love in a more expansive way. Chris, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you. Thanks so much for that intro and for the reading of my work.
1: Yeah, thanks so much for for coming on. Really excited to chat. So um, I'd love to hear how this book started for you. What was sort of the germ of the idea and when did you know you were working on a book?
0: Around the time my mother-in-law got sick, I started thinking a lot about the meaning of her and my partner Anna's life and then the meaning of my mom. And I started thinking about what is motherhood and what does it mean in my life? And it, I, I felt like as a parent, I had spent so much time defining myself as not a mom that I had no sense of what I actually was, just like what I was in opposition to. And I had been so aggressive about that, that I think I had turned away from a lot of the things about motherhood that actually were part of my experience and the community of women that I had become close with when I had Samson. Like I had just kind of like turned a cold shoulder to all that because I was like a dad now. And I think that my experience is actually a lot more nuanced than I used to be a mom and now I'm a dad. That's not how I conceive of my life. So I started just Writing almost, I feel like I almost wrote around it because the essays don't actually answer the question of what does it mean to not be a mom or a dad? It's really just like, wow, it's very complicated. And I think a lot more parents fall into this complicated space in a lot of different ways than the conversation allows for.
1: Yeah, I think that comes through in the book a lot. And then I, I think, since um you know we're gonna talk a lot about these kind of family connections in your book, can you introduce our listeners to the cast of characters a little bit? Um tell us a little bit about your family, your partner, your kids, how old they are, what they're interested in these days, you know, however, you would just kind of introduce them to us,
0: Sure, yeah, so I have been with my partner, Anna since I was a teenager. We met in college when I was nineteen, and I wasn't really out in a lot of different ways. Um, So she's kind of been with me through a lot. And we got married soon after I graduated from undergrad. So like on the younger side, for people in our class um, and geographic location, we, we were living in Philadelphia at the time and we're back here now. And then we have three children. She gave birth to Sean when I was 25, so he's nine now. I gave birth to Samson 13 months later, um, and he just turned eight. And then we have a five and a half year old, ZZ, who now in the book I used he and him pronouns for ZZ, but now is using they, them. So they just started kindergarten. And yeah, Anna carried Sean and Zizi, and I carried Samson, and all three children have the same known sperm donor who's a friend of ours.
1: Awesome. I want to talk more about your family and your family relationships, but I also something that that really struck me is the book deals a lot with bodies. Like, I love the way you talk about the way that fetal cells can get into a parent's body and stay there for years. It's actually something, like, I learned about a while back and can't stop thinking about in relation to my own pregnancy, my kid. So I wanted to talk a little bit about your pregnancy with Samson. And you talk about this in the book, but for our listeners, how did being pregnant and giving birth change or not change your relationship to your own body?
0: So I became pregnant Almost immediately after our first child was born, I first started trying to get pregnant when Sean was four months old, I think. It had just kind of been our life plan to have four children in four years. I don't know why we thought that was a, a good family planning <laughs> idea, but that was our plan. So after we had Sean, Anna had a pretty easy pregnancy and I was her birth was the first birth that I was at. and. It was at a birth center and things went according to what she had hoped for. So I was kind of like, this doesn't seem like too much of a big deal. And for some reason, I didn't really think through my own gender stuff. I was out as non-binary to her and a few friends. Like, I, I don't feel like I wasn't sure of my gender identity at the time, although I hadn't medically transitioned. I don't feel like medical transition actually changed my ideas of my own gender. But yeah, I just didn't really think through it until I was already pregnant. And then I was like, wow, this is actually a bigger deal than I anticipated because I think less than the bodily experience of pregnancy, the social experience of pregnancy was really difficult for me. And that's how I've experienced my own embodiment in general like I don't have a ton of problems with the way that my body is I just really don't like the publicness of the way that people talk about it or look at it so I think that that was for me the hardest part of pregnancy And then just the heightened way that you think about your body. I was like, I don't have a particular problem with my body, but pregnancy makes me just think about it all the time because I'm feeling all these new sensations and it's always changing. And you're like literally feeling stretched, which is very uncomfortable physically. A lot of my experience was just like discomfort. And I feel now that I look back on it and now that I've written on it, that I almost didn't fully experience it in a way. Like when I decided to start writing about it. Part of the reason was that I don't really even have strong memories of this time because I feel like I didn't really live it in a way because I just was trying to like get through it because I wanted the baby. And I'm very happy that we had the baby and that they're so close in age, even though I still think that was a very odd way to go about <laughs> our family building. <laughs> um, like the outcome was what I wanted, but the actual pregnancy experience, sometimes I feel sad that I didn't Experience it in a more embodied way.
1: That's really interesting. And you kind of touched on this, but can you talk a little bit about how your expectations compared with reality when it came to being pregnant, having a baby, having a kid? And how did it compare with seeing your partner be pregnant and then give birth to your older son?
0: I think everything about our experiences was pretty flipped. Like she. Identifies very strongly as a cis woman and has a very strong connection with a lot of the things about womanhood and motherhood that I think are typical for a lot of cis women. So she had a really easy pregnancy, like didn't have negative bodily sensations very often. So she had this experience, I think, of like very embodied and positive pregnancy in a lot of ways. And then um, her postpartum period was very difficult for her. Um, She really struggled a lot with like mood and affect, but also just with the reality of being a parent and how that was a big change in her life and what that meant in a larger sense for like the trajectory of her life. And I had kind of the opposite experience of like feeling super weird and awkward during pregnancy. And I had a great, like very easy postpartum period. I felt like almost like postpartum euphoria that some people talk about. And nursing was really easy. And where Anna went back to work At eight weeks after she had Sean, I didn't return to the classroom. I took a year away from teaching. Mm -hmm. So I just had a very different setup. And I think in a lot of ways, when she decided to have a second gestational child, it was almost like I want to have a totally different experience. Like I hope to have a birth that I feel better about and a postpartum period that I feel better about. And although you can't really control for that, I think she did a lot of work to try to set herself up for more success. Yeah, and for me, I was just kind of like, all right, I can forget about the whole like pregnancy and birth thing because now I have this baby and he's so great and that's what I always wanted and I just want to snuggle him all the time. And it was much harder for me to parse out the meaning of like the pregnancy and the birth. Yeah,
1: I mean, I also I my pregnancy was much easier than right after my pregnancy. I think it everyone's so different, but I found even labor quite easy compared with postpartum recovery. But yeah, I'm always really interested in hearing people's nursing and breastfeeding journeys. And your book in particular deals in this really interesting way with breasts, both as organs for feeding babies and as these really freighted cultural signifiers. I love the way you write about how different writers like Nora Ephron have thought about their own breasts kind of in relation to their lives. I think about like that Nora Ephron piece all the time. Can you talk a little bit about your nursing journey and what it was like for you, both just, you know, nuts and bolts logistically? Do you need lactation consultants? Like, how did that go? And then also emotionally, what was the emotional component like for you?
0: Yeah. So I have a really complicated relationship with breastfeeding as a thing. My partner, Anna, is actually a labor and delivery nurse, and she's one of those obsessed with breastfeeding people. And I have a healthy amount of skepticism about that movement and about what it means and bodily autonomy and the pressure that we put on women, especially. So I don't like the whole like lactation activists. Thing, but I have to accept that it exists. So I was very much like, I never questioned that I would breastfeed. Um, my mom breastfed all six of us, and I didn't think I would have issues because I had no reason to really think very deeply about it. But I was very concerned because my boobs got bigger while I was pregnant. And I was like, this is very not what I'm into right now. And it was uncomfortable. Right. So I felt very blessed that my first prenatal appointment, the midwife was like, you know that you don't have to do this. If this is not for you, like, we are totally in support of that. And also Anna was still lactating. So she was like, you could do that. Like, just think about the fact that you don't have to do this. I think it was helpful for me that someone said that so early on. And then when, like, at the birth, I was like, I'll do this. This sounds fine then my goal was to try it for six weeks and then see how I felt about it. And it was really hard emotionally for me. It wasn't difficult physically. Uh, The problem I was having was oversupply. Mm -hmm. So it was very painful, but like a good problem to have in in some ways. So. Yeah, it was just, like, drowning my child every time he (laughs) tried to breastfeed. And, like, I think a lot of, like, the postpartum period, so many amazing women writers have written about the body horror of just, like, that period. And for me, like, Milk Everywhere was the body horror Mm -hmm, of the postpartum period. At six weeks or so, I had gone to a breastfeeding support group a few times. And every time I went, I would say, let me keep doing it until I make it to the next group. That was like how I kind of like got through it. And I think without going there, I I would have just been like, this is not fun and I don't like it. So I would have just stopped. But I had a lot of community support that I feel like isn't really in place for a lot of folks. And I was living in a part of the country where there are just trans people and I was the only like trans masculine person that I know about at the breastfeeding group that I attended but like it just wasn't really a big deal it just kind of fit in with the like broad we all have breastfeeding struggles and yours is just that you don't like your boobs (laughs) not to like diminish the feelings but it was complicated for me and I don't know that I would ever breastfeed a child for two years again but I'm glad that I did that
1: yeah it's it's a lot that time um But yeah, I wanted to talk too about a lot of our cultural narratives about not just pregnant, but also postpartum bodies are kind of geared toward women. And so I want to talk a little bit about how you felt about your body postpartum. And did you feel like there were outlets or spaces to talk about those feelings?
0: I do think that I see a lot of similarity between medical transition and pregnancy as a trans person like I think that there's like expectations of what your body will do and be like and then there's the reality and there's like not a lot of spaces to talk about disappointment and the way that it all works out like I think that when people start taking hormones for example it's supposed to be like this great transformation into exactly what you want it to be. And I think that there's an expectation that pregnant people will transition into motherhood and it'll just be like all fine and perfect. So like in a way, I don't think that my relationship with my postpartum body is that different from like my sis friends who are moms. Like I've been lucky to have a lot of moms that I can talk to about the way that we look and feel after we're pregnant. But I do think that... Looking androgynous had been such a part of my sense of self before pregnancy. I was like very narrow-hipped person, and I'm not anymore. And the way that my boobs looked, they were like tiny A cups that could be so easily hidden. Like I was a very lucky trans person. And then that just like wasn't the case anymore. So I do think I had a lot of body disappointment, but I don't know that being trans makes it like particularly different from other people. I I, I mean, I do feel like my body became more feminine postpartum than even I had thought it was during pregnancy. Like I think having a big pregnant belly is a marker of femininity to many people, it is not to me. It's just kind of like something I was doing and I was one of those pregnant people with like the basketball belly, but like no other swelling or like bodily differences. And then my postpartum body was very like soft, just like extra-ness everywhere. I think I've struggled a lot more like as years go on to be like, it's permanent. It's not my postpartum body. It's like, this is just the body that I have now. And short of like extremely unhealthy dieting and exercise behaviors, this is really just like the way that I've been marked by this experience that I've had.
1: Yeah. You know, you mentioned like having moms that you talk to about this stuff. And you also kind of talk in the book about like, you know, this like sort of sisterhood of pregnant and postpartum women and like strangers run into each other and like talk easily about these experiences and like sometimes having the feeling of being left out of that. How did you find like circles of parents and our moms who you felt good and included talking about these experiences with? And like, what do those circles look like for you?
0: I truly think that the best benefit of breastfeeding my child was not the, like, breast cancer protectiveness or, like, the fact that he got to be soothed when he was crying, but, like, the people that I met in that group are still, like, my parenting people. And I had one really, really, really close friend when we lived in rural Michigan for a few years who was, like, my mom friend there that we could talk about this stuff. But it's not been easy, and I wouldn't say that it's been easier in, like, transmasculine spaces either. Like, I write in the book about how I've met a lot of people online, and that's, like, really meaningful to me in a lot of ways, this, like, online transmasculine birthing community of, like, a very small number of people. But it still doesn't replace, like, having those regular conversations with people. So, yeah, breastfeeding support group forever forever.
1: After being pregnant and giving birth to Samson, Chris Malcolm Belk did a lot of thinking about what his role was as a parent. He wasn't a mom, but I wanted to ask him whether or not there was a specific moment when he suddenly became dad. That's after a short break. obviously a book that's about pregnancy, but it's also a really deeply about parenting and family, like almost more so. And so I wanted to spend a little bit of time next talking about some of those family relationships. Like what really stuck out to me in this book is you talk about these moments of kind of becoming a dad or of feeling like a dad. When did you feel like that happened to you? Like when were you a dad?
0: I wrote in the book about this moment where this dude came up to me at a hotel breakfast uh, when we were moving to Michigan. So that was like just a few months after I'd started hormones. And, you know, like my friends in Philly knew that I was transitioning and that I was using new pronouns, but it was like, it's hard to get people on board with new pronouns in general. So I was just like, this isn't really like working out yet, but I'm about to move somewhere else. So we'll see what happens. And we stayed overnight at this hotel in the Midwest somewhere. And this dad, very like dad, dad, like this older white guy with these two teens came up to me and started talking about like how he has these magical memories of taking his kids fishing and I should really cherish this time. And I was like, wow, this is a person who would never in Philly think that I was like, just some dude. So I was like, this is, cool, like, my transition is working. But also, like, wow, I'm unprepared to talk to these people. I don't have a lot of, like, cis dads in my life. A lot of my guy friends are gay guys who don't have kids. So, yeah, that was when it, like, first started. And it was almost like the moment that I was in Michigan, it was just like, we only code people as men or women, and this person is a man, so, like, that's it. So I feel like I didn't have the, like... Liminal period that I thought would last much longer that period only really lasted like a few months
1: Right talk to me a little bit more about why was that hard? Like why was it hard for it to be fast to suddenly be seen or read as a dad?
0: I think people have a false idea of like what it means to be a queer parent that it means like everything has to be 50 50 and problem solving is so easy Like I think people had perceived me and Anna in a lot of ways to be more like a lesbian couple even though, like, that's complicated. But I think we felt more into that mode. But then once we moved, I was getting, like, a lot of compliments on my, like, basic parenting. Like, (laughs) I wouldn't even call what I was doing parenting, but more like, I exist. All three of my children are wearing seasonally appropriate attire. (laughs) They're not acting horrible at this exact moment. Like, people would come up to me and be like, you're so gentle, you're so wonderful. And I'm like, I'm at the grocery store. I just, like... (laughs) I had never been, like, perceived to be particularly competent. I was just, like, a regular parent before. So it was really hard for me because I felt like, not that I hadn't thought about, like, what it would be like to be perceived to be, like, a white man, but I just, I guess, didn't emotionally prepare for it in the way that I maybe should have. I had thought about it in a lot of other ways, like how will I be perceived in the classroom as a teacher and how will I be perceived in the workplace and what will this mean? Like I thought about it for those things because I was like, I'm going to have to do a lot of work not to take up the wrong kinds of space or participate in conversations with other adults in a certain way. But I guess I hadn't thought about like how my intimate life would be affected because I it didn't really affect the functioning of my family like, wasn't really a big deal for Anna or my kids at all, but it was a huge deal, like, in how our family was perceived.
1: Right. And then just to, like, kind of take a step back, can you talk a little bit about what being a dad means to you? Like, what's a dad? What's a father?
0: (sighs) I think it's, like, someone who does fun stuff with their kids. And, like, that's it. Like, I think that I think of dads as, like, They take you to a ball game or because that was the experience that I had. But also, I think like the way that dads have been portrayed culturally is like they coach sports, they take you on vacation, but they're not doing the dishes and they're not cooking dinner. And if they are, then it's like feminized in a lot of ways. And I grew up with my parents and I have a good relationship, but my dad was an angry dude when we were little. And... I grew up with just a lot of like the wrath of dad. Like if you did something bad, mom was going to tell dad because clearly her ability to control you has not been sufficient for this (laughs) moment. So yeah, it was a lot of like dad's going to take us on vacation, but he'll also get super enraged if we do anything wrong. So it was like this combination of like he's only around for the fun times unless he's doing extreme levels of discipline and the dailiness of what it means to be a person and a partner and a parent is it wasn't really part of my concept of dadness. Like, he never bought us clothes. Like, all of the things that I hate about being a parent in a lot of ways. Like, he wouldn't replace our socks. He wouldn't make our lunches for school. He wouldn't empty the dishwasher. He wouldn't fold laundry. Like, so, yeah, I was just like, how do I even fit into this landscape? I mean... Now I've met more stay-at-home dad figure. Like, I have more of those kinds of people in my life. But at the time, I really just didn't. And I was like, I don't have the vocabulary to sort all of this out. So I'm going to try to write about what it all means to me.
1: Yeah, it's funny because as you were talking, I was thinking about, like, things that moms sometimes do that they think of as dad things. And, like, the first thing I thought of was naps. Like, I, I remember this piece, I think it's by Jessica Gross, where she talks about taking dad naps And it just means taking a nap, like, but like, that's a dad thing to like, be able to sleep in the day when your children are (laughs) awake.
0: To just resting, resting is a dad thing.
1: (laughs) Getting rest. Yeah. I mean, so you talked about like, what dads are culturally or, you know, in your upbringing. And like, a lot of that resonates with me too. How have you constituted like fatherhood and parenthood for yourself? Like, how do you think about that? How do you think about what kind of parent you want to be and who you want to be to
0: your kids? I think it's hard because, like, I think the reason why my book has so much in it about childhood is because I was trying to figure out what are the things about my own childhood that I want to take with me and what are the things that I really don't want to be a part of. And you can't really, like, have one without the other because, like, I wouldn't be the person that I am without both of those, like, sets of experiences. So I think, you know, my parents are very funny, and our house was, like, extremely lively and chaotic. And those are some of the things that I want my kids to have, like, a lot of fun and action, and to feel like their life is fun, and that's great. But I don't want the, like, ragey things or the, like, very prescriptive gender stuff that I was subjected to as a child, and that my siblings, who are cis, didn't benefit from either. They're like pretty gender non-conforming people in a lot of ways, like all of them actually. But I will say that there are things that My parents did really well that I want to take with me. Like, I have a brother who's autistic and I have a child who's autistic. And a lot of the, like, advocacy work and work that they did. And they were, like, very active in their community and always giving other parents, like, advice and support and working actually alongside autistic people. Like, they modeled for me a lot of, like, anti-ableist behavior that I think is super great and, like, very central to my own life and parenting. So I think I I just, like... To summarize, like, I want to really be very thoughtful about the gifts that I've been given and also, like, not discount the ways in which I was very much hindered by some of the, like, ways that I was held back. Yeah, it's really complicated.
1: Totally. You know, you mentioned at the end talking about them starting to grow up. I mean... um, you know, I have a son. So some of the stuff in the book about parenting sons really resonated with me. You talk about like, pulling them apart by their collars, which like, I only have one kid, so I don't have to pull them apart, like at home from anybody else. But like, definitely have have seen that. But talk to me a little bit about how do you go about parenting sons? And you also have a child who uses they them pronouns. So how do you think about yourself as a role model for your kids? Like, how do you think about their gender and their genders? Like, talk to me about all this stuff.
0: Yeah, so I I think that's something that a lot of people are surprised by is that my kids really forget that I'm trans like a lot. It's not really part of their concept of what their lives are structured around. I think that they know intellectually, like our family structure is not typical. They know that they have a sperm donor. He's in their life a little bit, so they know him. They know that I'm trans, so they understand what that means. Like they have the facts, but I think that it doesn't really mean much to them. They're just like, there's the one parent who has these rules and the other parent who has (laughs) these other rules because we don't really parent together a whole lot because we rotate. One of us works day shifts and one of us works night shifts most of the time, which is like part of the book where Anna's always asleep, she says. She says that's a big flaw of the book. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, but I've, I've grappled a lot. There are moments that I wrote about in the book that were really difficult and painful for me where I was trying to make decisions about how to explain being trans to my kids because I... I think that it's wonderful for people to make decisions about their gender at any point in their life, but I feel like I was heavily delayed by factors that I don't want my kids to have, like religion and family and like being a teacher and teaching being so conservative and gendered. Like there are so many things that I felt were roadblocks to my coming out. So I wanted to be like, I don't have a problem with the fact that I'm trans and I want my kids to see that, but I also want to give them more freedom than I had and be explicit about it. So how to talk about, like, some people might think this, but other people think that has been, like, really messy for me. And I think some people might think that because I'm non-binary, I have more tools to support my kids in being themselves when, in fact, I might just have, like, more spiraling that I do (laughs) about (laughs) these issues... I will say that Samson has very long hair and uh, is often misperceived to be a girl, although he has a very strong, like, cis boy identity. And I would say, like, a uh, overly masculine energy in some ways, <laughs> like, overly into roughhousing, overly into, like, playing pranks. Like, some of the negative things about, like, my little brothers growing up are very present <laughs> in him. But he's struggled He's had some times of being very upset about being misperceived to be a girl. I've found it very difficult to talk about that without projecting my own, like, I agree, being misperceived as a girl is the worst thing that can happen to someone because that might be my personal reality. But for him as a cis boy, it's not really that big of a deal. It feels bad to him in the moment, and I want to honor that. But also, like, he's just a cis boy and, like, he needs to get over it. I mean, when it's, like the school lunch aide wouldn't let me into the boys' bathroom and went around asking people whether I was a boy or a girl. That's wow. traumatizing. So yeah, I yeah. I honor that. But yeah, I think that these issues are super complicated, but I try without giving them more information than would be healthy for them, just like let them know that the reason why I transitioned as an adult is that it wasn't an option for me when I was a kid. And that makes me feel sad sometimes, you know, like especially when my youngest they started experimenting with they and she pronouns at school before home, like at preschool and like had a trans teacher. And I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of like, yeah, sometimes you find a place that's safer than your house. And I love that for you. That's a great thing to communicate to kids, but also makes me spiral about like, what did I do that it wasn't, mm-hmm. you know? So yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't think that there's an answer. I just think that um, I want my kids to have like support, but also freedom.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. When you talk about spiraling, I I recently tried to explain to my kid who's three what misogyny is. And I was doing like the worst, like this is my literal job is like explaining to people what misogyny is. And Mm -hmm. I did the worst job. It was terrible. (laughs) I don't even remember what I said. I think I was like, go ask your dad.
0: Yeah, when we started this conversation, it was also super clumsy. It was like some people think girls aren't good at math, and then I'm like, <laughs> why would we even say that? You know, that's just not helpful or practical yeah. because the kids are two or three. That doesn't mean anything to them, right? You know, but I, I, it's like super clunky. But you always get to redo it, right? So yeah, he'll
1: forget everything I said tomorrow. So that's
0: good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
1: You kind of brought this up, but I wanted to talk about anger, too, because you talk Mm -hmm. about anger in relationship to masculinity. You talk about anger in relationship to parenting, in relationship to the way that you were sometimes parented. Like, talk a little bit about the role of anger in your life, both negative and if there's positive roles. And, like, how do you think about anger when you think about parenting and when you think about raising your kids?
0: Something that I hope comes across in the book is that I was a very angry young adult and have, like, done some labor on myself And now I don't, I wouldn't use angry as a word to describe myself at all. In fact, sometimes I'm like, why don't I get more peeved about like insert XYZ thing? Like I'm pretty chill as a person now. And I think in a lot of ways, as a trans writer, I'm trying to write with some of the trans tradition and other memoirs, especially that I've read, but also against some of the ideas that people have about transition that sometimes are almost propped up by the trans narratives that actually manage to get out there because there's such a limited set of them. So one of the big, in my opinion, misperceptions is that testosterone is going to like make you some sort of way or that it exists as this like hormone of rage. Because I had the experience that I've heard a lot of other trans masculine people talk about where it's actually calming to start to get perceived in the way that you wish to be perceived and very calming to like feel better about your body or like just to feel like you're doing something to help yourself is a very calming thing versus being like I'm just pissed at myself because I can't make this decision about whether to take testosterone or not you know so I think that I in my young adulthood had a lot of anger and like I now have transitioned and like it's fine but It's really hard for me to think about all of the anger that I built up out of repression and self-repression and, like, shame. And I think I have mixed feelings about writing about queer shame because I want to read more stories about queer joy, but that's not necessarily my story yet. If I sat down to write a memoir now, I think it would be more joyful than when I sat down to write one, like, now it's five years since I started the book, and I was very angry. So, Yeah, I think that writing about shame and anger and all of that is like fraught for a transmasculine person. And that's part of the reason why I wanted to do it. I feel like it's a really important factor in how I chose to like be a parent and what kind of parent I want to be. And I also feel like a lot of the book in a way was like me writing directly to my partner. Like a lot of it is in direct address. And I think that we have... At this point, an extremely, like, positive marriage that's, like, a guiding force in my life. But it wasn't always good because I was, like, not a fun person to be with when I was just, like, an angry 20-year-old. And I think that it's important to have that complication um, and not have it be just, like, queers in love, walk off into the sun, and, like, everything's great. Because that wasn't, like, she had to be with me through a lot of, like, really not great stuff that I was up to.
1: One of the things I really like about Chris Malcolm Belk's memoir is the way he documents his family's interactions with the legal system. It exposes some of the strange and outdated ways our society defines and documents parenthood. I'll ask Chris to tell me some of what he's been through after one more short break. There's this particular passage from your book that I want to ask you to read out loud, if you could.
0: Sure. There are the things one gains by transitioning and the things one loses. There is the new body, the confidence. There is the title dad, the power granted to men. And there is what one loses, the assumption of connection. Of course, sperm is a connection. Biological fatherhood is a connection, but it is not the same. The assumption of gestation, of birth, of true creation, that falls away. In the courthouse, I thought I might experience my last public performance as a birth parent.
1: Awesome. Thank you. Talk a little bit more about that idea, because I think that's really threaded throughout the book in a lot of ways, that there are things you gain and some things you lose in this experience.
0: Yeah. So to offer like just brief information for listeners, when Children are conceived through donation in a queer family. Generally, a second parent adoption has to take place so that even if both of the parents raising the child are on the birth certificate, that's not really like full parentage. So we had to engage with the court system here in Philadelphia in order to like really lock down our parental rights. And with our son, Sean, we did it right away because like I'm afraid of my in-laws actually. And then with Samson, we didn't really feel... I need to do that and so we adopted samson and zizi together when samson was like two and a half and zizi was an infant and the adoption took place right after i started hormones so like i think three or four months after i had started taking hormones and people in my life were starting to like rewire how they were referring to me or like they were using parent or where it was some people would say mom before but they were like correcting themselves and I didn't really, like, do that any of that with the court stuff because it was already in process when I, like, decided to take tea and, and start using different pronouns, and then I legally changed my name. But none of that was part of the court proceedings. It was just, like, this lady gave birth to this kid, and now this other lady is adopting this kid. So we were just kind of, like, going with our, like, assigned genders at birth and what it said on our kids' birth certificates. So I was very much, like... Kristen Belk, who gave birth to Samson, is allowing Anna Belk to take parentage of Samson. So I was very much feeling like this is really the last time because I don't use this name anymore and I'm going to change my name and I'm going to change my gender markers like I had made that decision finally, but it wasn't in time for the adoption. And it's like a legal There's a court record of me saying, yes, I am this child's mother. And like, yes, this other woman is also his mother. Like, I had to kind of like swear to all this false stuff just to get the legal protections. I need to like take a step back in this courtroom just for this one day. And then I can go back to my like new life where I'm transitioning into a dad. So it was just like a very like uncanny time and space, but also gravely serious. Cause like there's social workers who come and talk to your family and you just want everything to like go okay on that day. So it's like very fraught in so many different ways.
1: Can you talk a little bit more for our listeners who might not be familiar uh, about why your family even had to go through this? Why did you have to jump through all these hoops?
0: So for one, our kid's sperm donor could have there are precedents in some states for donors asserting parental rights over children that they've donated for. And that was especially true because our first two children were like conceived at home. This friend came over and just gave us sperm and there was no doctor involved or like freezing the sperm or any of that kind of stuff. So I think courts have traditionally looked on that with more suspicion than kids who are like made in a doctor's office. So We didn't want a third party to try to assert parentage over our children, but in all honesty, he would never do that. I truly believe there are no circumstances under which that would happen. But I also didn't want him to ever have responsibilities. There's rights, and then there's also responsibilities. And, like, he shouldn't pay for, like, my kids' college tuition or their debts, or, like, he shouldn't be involved in their life in that way, because that's not his role. So there's that, like, dealing with him. And for me, like, I... I'm not someone who's prone to thinking a lot about death and disaster, like, as a person. But I truly did think that if Anna died, her dad would try to take our children. Mm -hmm. And that if I wasn't their legal parent, like, in a very firm way, that I would lose my own children. Whereas my parents would be like, nope, we raised six kids. We don't want these ones. So... (laughs) It's a protective act, and I think that there's, like, robust conversations among queer parents about, like, when will the tides have turned enough so that being on your child's birth certificate is sufficient? I'm not an attorney, but I've seen, like, attorneys on all of these, like, internet conversations that pop up being like, no, you really do still need to do this. A lot of states have made it extremely easy for the second parent, the non-biological parent, like where you just fill out papers. But in Pennsylvania, you still have to have like attorneys and court fees. Like it's still very expensive and difficult to do. And like the internet chatter about my book has been like, how did they afford all this? And like I was a public school teacher and my union paid all of the legal fees for all of the adoptions. So that was great and a great benefit of the work that I had. But for a lot of people, it's like prohibitively expensive.
1: Can you talk a little bit about how Samson felt about the adoption? You have this line in the book where he talks about needing his costume, which I thought was this really funny and also relatable moment as a parent of a young child.
0: Yeah, I don't think that they understood it, like the kids, like Sean and Samson, because we explained to Sean, like, we did this with you when you were a baby too. Like, because they had always lived with the two of us and we were a family, I think they like truly didn't understand it. So we were just like we did a poor job of explaining it. Now we've explained it to them in a better way because you always do better on like second or third tries. But we were like, we just need to do this to make sure that everybody thinks we're both your real parents. And they were like, what? (laughs) You know, like, so. I I don't think they understood it, but I will say that, you know, family court is pretty bleak and I've had to go for various jobs to testify on students' behalf and like all this other stuff. But adoption day is kind of nice. They do it on a day where like there's lots of different kinds of families who come like kinship adoption. like just like a lot of really fun stuff. So it was nice. I think a lot of queer people are rightfully angry, especially if it's more of a financial struggle for them to do it. They're like super pissed about it. But we framed it as like this is just a way for us to be like super sure that everyone accepts our family. And they were like, all right, I don't know if that's good or bad, but that's what we decided to do.
1: That makes sense. You include a lot of um, legal documents in the book, including a lot of documents around the adoption. You mentioned like some of the documents actually have Samson's name misspelled on them, you know, but other kind of like legal processes that you and your family had to be involved in at various times. Can you talk about why you chose to have the documents as part of the book?
0: Yeah. I always knew that they would be. This was one of the earliest things that I started working on. Like, I wrote a few of the very short pieces about my mother and mother-in-law, as I talked about earlier. And then as soon as I had, like, really just a handful of pages about them, I pivoted to starting playing with these legal documents I started writing about them because I was angry about all of the hoops that I had had to jump through and continued to have to jump through. Like, I started the legal name change process when Trump was elected. Like, I posted on Facebook being like, I feel like such an idiot. I haven't changed my name yet. What if I'm never able to get a passport? (laughs) Like, I had, like, a very, like, self centered, whiny Facebook posts like many people on that night. And um, a friend actually put me in touch with a name change attorney. And like, I ended up changing my name legally. But while I was going through that process, I was like, living in Michigan as a student, but changing my name in Philadelphia, because that was where I was still a resident. Like, it was just all very annoying and legally as everything always is. And I'm like, why do I keep having to do this? And I'm changing my gender from female to male, but I don't identify as a man. So I'm just kind of like doing this whole thing and it's just irritating and also still not accurate. So when I started playing with it, I was like, I'm going to write an essay that shows everyone how unfair it is that queer people have to engage with the legal system. But then as I kept reworking it and kept added in all these different forms and I used all, like there were so many more legal documents so I kept switching what I was using. I think that it kind of morphed into this thing where there's almost like a a humor and the repetitiveness to me as a reader where it becomes this thing of like, it's just ridiculous. It's no longer even like, angering or unfair, where it's just like almost like uncanny to hear my birth name over and over. It keeps saying the natural mother of the child is this and the natural mother of the child is that. And I was like, this makes me so angry. But then later on, I was like, I actually think it's funny now. Like, maybe I've looked at it so many times that I'm not even angry about it anymore. I just think it's funny. Like, that's true as well for, you know, there's this thing about how we were accidentally married in New Jersey before marriage was legal for queer people in New Jersey. The clerk issued us a marriage (laughs) license accidentally. And I'm like, I was so angry because it delayed Anna getting health care because she was going to get on my health insurance. And it was this huge thing. But then years later, I was like, it's actually really funny. So I don't know. I think that in a way, like, you write memoir knowing that it's going to be like a public facing thing. But it's also like for me, an act of reclamation and like, getting to decide what the meaning of things that I feel like have happened to me. Like, now I get to say more about, like, what they mean and have more agency about them.
1: And just because you mentioned the title, can you talk for listeners a little bit about how you chose that title, where it comes up in these documents?
0: Yeah. So in Samson's legal adoption documents, I'm referred to as the natural mother of the child. because so I was listed on his birth certificate as the mother. Now Pennsylvania does parent one, parent two, or like you get to pick if you want to be mother or parent. Like I think things have changed, but I was mother and then like my full maiden name was listed. So, you know, they're kind of like identifying me for the court. So I just keep being referred to as the natural mother of the child. And I think that, there's, like, a dual purpose to playing with that. So it's not only that I'm not a mother, which is, like, the main focus of the book, but also that I don't think that this word natural that's come to have so much, like, cultural cash when talking about pregnancy, childbirth, feeding infants, like, it it means so many damaging things. And I don't know that, like it's a useful word when talking about parenting at all. Like I don't like it. It makes me upset in all contexts. So I also think it's upsetting that I'm like more of a natural parent than other parents would be. That makes no sense.
1: Right. In the book, sometimes you talk about telling your kids like that you made Samson. Is that still language that you use?
0: Yeah, we say who made whom is, like, how we Mm -hmm. talk about it. They have, like, a pretty good sense of where babies come from, from Anna's work. Yeah. And, like, all the different ways they're born. And some of them are born through surgery. Like, we talk about birth a lot because it's, like, her whole life. So, and um, we've had some, like... I don't know if they're difficult, but, like, some emerging conversations with our non-binary kid about, like, what kinds of people can make babies and that you have to have a uterus and, unfortunately, you don't have one. Like, we've started to have that conversation, which is, like, sad. You know, it didn't really catch, like, who has what body in our family and what that means. But, yeah, they very much are, like, who made whom and they're very attached to it, for better or worse.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. I think the biggest question that, you know, we've kind of, we talked about a little bit, but I want to talk about more and maybe leave us with is that something you get at a lot of times in the book is how American society sort of lacks language for, and we have even talked about this, lacks language for someone who gives birth, but isn't a mom. I know this is kind of a hard question, but like, how would you want our ideas about motherhood and fatherhood to sort of shift and expand? And what would you want to add to or subtract from the way we talk about parenting in America?
0: That is a huge question. <laughs> I, I will say that since it's been eight years since I gave birth, in some ways, I feel really glad that I did it then because there was less of a public conversation, which meant that the only times that I was having conversations like about it was in a safe space safer space, like it would be with friends I knew who were cool or, like, internet communities of transmasculine people. And there wasn't much of, like, a public conversation about what does it mean that not everyone who gives birth is a woman. And now that it's become a public conversation, there's backlash about people who are trying to make the language more neutral and, like, you know, all that comes with that and how heavy it is for people. I will say that although... I mean, I, I wouldn't, like, pat myself on the back about it, right? But I'm married to a cis person. I chose to write a lot of the book in direct address to her because there is a gap between us that a lot of it is about my gender and her gender being different and, like, her concept of having a baby being so tied up with womanhood that it's, like, hard to untangle, like, that other people could have a different experience. Like, I write in the book about how she refused to change this lactation paper to be more inclusive in its language and that like wasn't a good moment but now that she's back working in labor and delivery after a few years out of it like she always says birthing person and you know like always says parent like there's a lot more gender neutral language that I think is like not only because she has a trans partner but also because people who actually work in that field have started to change how they're talking about it and like what they're putting on forms and they're having, like, active conversations about it. So in a way, that gives me a lot of hope because I've seen an individual's behavior and concept of this, like, morph over time. And I really strongly believe as, like, a fairly privileged transmasculine person that, like, I never want my own participation in conversations about parenting and, like, my body and, like, my reproductive rights and all of that to, like interfere with women's ability to get what they need to get or to, like, have the public word. So I would never, like, step in and be like, you shouldn't really say woman when you're talking about your own experience. Like, that's just not helpful. But I think that the conversation has boundaries that are much more porous than sometimes, like, we allow for. So I want my book to exist as, like, a Let's think a little bit more about how to include people who like not only are part of the experience, but also like do truly believe that women's experiences need to be centered in these conversations while also allowing for other people to participate. Like it, it's mostly about women, but it's also about a lot of other kinds of people who need to be a part of this conversation. So Yeah, I think that that is my hope, that we can somehow find a way to, like, acknowledge that things are nuanced. And I think that that is part of writing a memoir that doesn't have a narrative arc or a clear answer to anything was, like, my way to be, like, conversations are allowed to not have conclusions and they're allowed to be messy and they're allowed to talk about women and mothers being the center of a book that's about how I'm not a mother is like a very clear gesture to like, there's a way to honor this experience and this need without saying that I'm a mom or like erasing myself completely from the face of the earth. Like neither of those needs to happen and i think that it also benefits other conversations that aren't centered on like reproductive rights or who gestates whom or breastfeeding or whatever like i think a lot a lot about conversations about domestic labor yeah. and especially like the mental load and the way that essays especially like major media often the essays are like mom say this and dad say they're doing this but actually they're not doing any of that right like that's been like the way that it's been broken down. And I'm like, you know, there's a lot of people who aren't part of this whole thing that you all cishet people have going on. Like not just me and my trans family, but there's like a lot of people who have other family structures that have like more than two adults or two guys or like whatever. So I'm like, it would only benefit this conversation to include more people because otherwise we're just like having... Cis women writing endless essays about how bad it is for cis women married to cis men. And it's been like the same conversation that it was when I had Samson eight years ago versus the conversation about gestation, which is going through like a lot of turmoil and evolution. So I'm like, maybe it's time to have new people join this conversation since you, you all can't get anywhere on this whole thing. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs>
1: no, that's a really good point. I mean, I I think you're absolutely right. I, I've seen conversations around reproductive health and around pregnancy and birth change a ton in the time that I've been covering this, which is like about 10, 11 years. But you're right. I haven't seen conversations about care change that much. I haven't seen conversations about like work in the home change that much. We're absolutely like still writing those essays.
0: And it sucks because like it's still terrible that, like, cis dads don't do as much as they think they do, right? Like, that's, like, a known fact. And, like, it's not good, you know? It's, like, almost exactly the same as the conversation my mom has about raising six kids in, like, the 80s and 90s. Like, that's really difficult. And I don't know that cis het society is going to solve that on their own. And there's only more and more types of families who, like, are eager to write about and be a part of the conversation.
1: Yeah. Well, listen, I think that's a great place to end in the spirit of being open-ended and letting things stay nuanced. Thank you so much for coming on. This was a great conversation. I feel like I learned so much. This is a great book and also really visually interesting. So in a way that doesn't come across on the radio. So I encourage folks to pick it up. Thanks so much, Chris, for coming on. This was awesome.
0: Thank you again for having me and for the awesome questions that you asked. They really gave me a lot to think about. Thank you. Thanks so much.
1: Vox Conversations is produced by Eric Janikis. Our editor is Amy Drozdowska. Paul Robert Mounsey mixed and mastered this episode. Our theme music was dreamed up by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. And Amber Hall is the deputy editorial director of Vox Talk. Thanks to Victoria Dominguez, the Vox Audio Fellow, for her help on this episode. If you like the show, let us know. Room for improvement? We want to hear that too. We're curious to know what you think, what you want more of, what we could improve. And if you have ideas for future guests or topics, send us your thoughts at voxconversations at vox.com. And hey, if you did like this episode, share it with your friends and please rate and review and join us next week for a brand new episode.